Welcome to In the Arena, a show where entrepreneurs and leaders take us behind the headlines and into the biggest crises of their careers and lives and how they made it to the other side. I'm Jesse Janae, a startup founder and your host. Today on In the Arena, Sophia Amoruso, founder of Nastigal and Girlboss, shares what it's like to go from being on the cover of Forbes to bankruptcy in a matter of months. Few people have grown a company from scratch to the scale that Sophia did by bootstrapping. Fewer still raise millions in venture capital from top tier VCs, inspire a generation of women in business, have a Netflix series about their lives and still get publicly shamed as some kind of failure. I never want to lead a team again. I'm not, I'm not an operator. I don't enjoy it. I could build something massive. I don't know if I'm playing small or lazy or damaged or just playing to my strengths. And I kind of think I'm probably playing to my strengths. I just keep showing up. One, because like I didn't make $300 million from Nasty Gal and I'm unemployable and I have a platform that I'm gonna use. It's not about what you have, it's what you do with what you have. I found Sophia's honesty about her strengths and weaknesses really refreshing as she discussed stepping down as CEO and Nasty Gal's bankruptcy. I also think it's notable that despite what pressing critics had to say, Sophie is thriving and is now an active venture capitalist with her own fund. Failure can be powerful fuel. I'm also joined by co-host Eric Torenberg, a startup founder, investor, and podcaster. Sophia, welcome to In the Arena. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Sophia, we start every uh, episode here in In the Arena with the key moment, uh, perhaps the key realization when um, our guests realized that everything was going to hell. And so, I'm, I'm I'm curious for you if you can walk us through. I'm sure you know there there might have been a few, but perhaps one that that wasn't as obvious, or maybe, maybe one you haven't shared as much before about a moment where you realized. This is just too. This is not going to work. This is just too much. I, I can't take it anymore. I mean, it was over the course of a year. There was no like singular moment where I was like, "Holy shit!" But there was a year in my life where, you know, I was I got married in 2015, and then this guy I dated for like five years was like, "See ya!" In like that was July, a month after I was on the cover of Forbes, and then Nasty Gal fell apart, and like. November of that year. And then a Netflix series came out about my life in like April. So like it was that period of the next year that was just like mind fuck, identity fuck, like, can I say fuck? Like it was that, it was that period. But I mean, the oh fuck is like you file for chapter 11. Like that's the oh fuck, right? Is there times you can remember at the office or, or otherwise where things distinct moments where things stop being fun. So it's probably not one one realization moment, but yeah. where you feel a little bit like you're on a ride, but then you realize like your seatbelt like won't unbuckle. <laughs> like like mm-hmm. is there is there moments where you're in a certain meeting or you get a certain email or I don't know, something that helps illuminate. I think this is something a lot of entrepreneurs feel, but it is interesting to dissect the lead in. Like, are there any distinct times you did start feeling that way? I think it's when you lay people off, when you realize like, oh my gosh, this is an incredibly hard thing. I have to make hard decisions that affect people's lives and I'm responsible for this. I'm responsible for the executives that, you know, I trusted and the investors who were like, let's 
hire a hundred people in a year. We're just going to grow by a hundred million in revenue. Just like it was that simple. Yeah. I think like the gravity of, of like laying people off is really like that's that first layoff at Nasty Gal was the, like the gnarly one. And was that while you were in the CEO seat or had you already done that hire when you did that first layoff? I was in the CEO seat. Um, and then it was early 2015. So it was like late 2014. I think we did the first layoffs and it was like early 2015 that I put a CEO in place. Cause I was like, I'm so far in over my head. I don't like, this is, I'm not a CEO. Like I'm a creative, I'm a zero to one founder. And I wish I had learned that earlier. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Would you have done it so- sooner or, you know, if you can go back, what, what might you've done differently more broadly? I would have sold the company. Like I would have sold it. Like I would take and take <laughs> it was there. You know, I think a lot of founders are like, yeah, I'm going to hold out and we'll be worth a billion when it's like being worth a billion and selling your company for a billion or going public are very different things. You know, I would have taken the money because there were offers, right? There was an offer of over 400 million from an outfitter of urban clothing when I owned 80% mm-hmm. of the company. Like, been good to say yes, but every deal falls through. So before you had to do that first layoff, you felt like there had been opportunities potentially to even sell. Oh yeah, there were on paper. Yeah, yeah. Like flying out to Philadelphia, sitting with the CEO, getting in. And you were like a billionaire bust, or you were just like, no way, no how. That that's not what a real founder does. Or what was I was your like, it's really exciting, and I controlled the board. You know, I own almost all of the company but I took advice right like I was I was like started my company when I was 22 I never worked in an office before I didn't know what leadership was because I never needed it so I didn't even really have a ton of empathy for like what it was that other people needed to be successful and at that point was like taking a lot of advice Mm -hmm. and that can be a great thing but it can also not be a great thing I didn't have a lot of voices around the table so I had one board member and I was the other one and I controlled the empty seat and nothing really ever came to a vote, but I didn't build a board around me. I'd heard they were like a nightmare. I didn't build a board of advisors. You know, mm-hmm. I eventually met some founders and, but I like, I didn't have enough voices around me that could give me different opinions. So what I was told is to ask for more. Um, ultimately it was my decision, but it was like, it was essentially a no, like more and Mm -hmm. you know, it fell apart, but all deals fall apart. Okay. So when you end up having to do this first layoff, like, do you feel like, okay, we're going to take this medicine and this is what the company needs. And then I'm going to potentially look for CEO. I'm curious if you already knew you were going to do that at that time, but then we're, we're kind of good. Or did you already feel this like slow bleed of like, this is the beginning of many painful steps. Like how far in your like entrepreneurial glasses could you see at that time? I mean, I couldn't see that far out. I mean, I was on a rocket ship. ship. It was like 75K, 250K, bootstrapped, 1.16 and a half, 12 on a run rate to 28, just like profitably. I didn't have to learn the fundamentals of business because there was always a ton of, like there was like over a million dollars cash in the bank that I, you know, that the business had generated and I didn't have a huge team and then like revenue per head was like mm-hmm. a million bucks or more. So I could never have like far out anticipated, I think, what happened at Nasty Gal, both like the wild, incredible 
super fun, super successful trajectory as well as like what didn't work, um, but it worked for 10 years. And, you know, I had a lot, I did have like a team of C-level executives around me and we were, we had plans to, you know, obviously uh, for the business to obviously rebound. Um, there's no way to anticipate years out uh, what was the the rumor the rumor is I hear as as an entrepreneur myself that when you hire these C level executives, especially people with more experience than you, that um, you have a team around you, and all of a sudden you have confidants and you have people who are going to help you see around corners. I know I didn't always feel that way. Um, I'm curious how much of that team you had built out at that phase when things start being difficult. You're facing layoffs and, and taking some of this medicine. And did you feel like, where's my team? <laughs> like, did you ha- did you feel like these people around you were supposed to be more helpful? Or did you actually feel like, oh, I'm getting good advice? Like, where were you on that spectrum? I think aligning an executive team is really hard. Having people from more traditional backgrounds that weren't necessarily e-com or, you know, e-com was still very early. People were like copying and pasting stuff from legacy companies onto my direct-to-consumer business. And at the time, it wasn't even called direct-to-consumer. It was like e-commerce. And there was no (laughs) Shopify. And there was no Squarespace. And like Dropbox raised money in 20, like the big, the first money into Nasty Gal was out of a growth fund. And it was 50 Mm -hmm. million. And it was that same fund that Index had written a big check into Dropbox from. But like that was brand new. Like we were, nobody was even using it. So I had these like kind of archaic, we had, you know, huge bloated team, CTO, amazing CTO, but I had to have a product team and a bunch of engineers to build like a shopping app because there was no real front end to this stuff. Magento was the future. And, mm-hmm. you know, even that wasn't great. So, you know, what we had built was on fucking cold fusion and I'm not an engineer, but I know that that's like insane. So I didn't have a team of executives, which now you have this generation of it, executives who come up in e-com. Then it became called mm-hmm. direct-to-consumer. They spent years at Glossier or Way or wherever, and they've got this, there's a there's a playbook, and there was no playbook. So yeah, I had a CTO and a CFO and a head of people and a COO and eventually a CEO. And a, we're all like, everybody's working in their self-interest unless you're a really good leader and are able to align people around a greater vision and what we were doing at Nasty Gal and the way it the way it made people feel was unlike anything I've ever seen before and incredibly special and powerful. Um, but from a here's what we're building vision kind of thing, like I had never really looked that far out. You know, when someone hears, oh, the company's not doing so hot or like, oh, this is late or blah, blah, blah. When you make a micro expression as a CEO, when you're like in an elevator with one employee and you talk to, when, with like a bunch of employees and you talk to one, forever that person will be seen as more important than the rest of them. And you're and operating. Do you feel like you like, knew that at the time? Did, did that like, or do you feel like you see that now with hindsight? And no one eventually time... told me that, but no, I was like, <laughs> I wanted to be like the cool CEO. Yeah. I was like the last person at her holiday party, like dancing and like drinking and people just wanted to see a, a boss. And I was like, I had never had one. I don't really like, Yeah. I was just like so clueless. Like, not only was I clueless and tasked with a job I didn't understand or even know I had, I fucking hated it. Like, I don't want to be a CEO. I don't want to be like, I don't want to lead a bunch of people and like talk about their like future. 
Yeah, I, <laughs> that's relatable. I, I, I feel like um, just a year or so into my business, at one point someone asked me, what is my five-year trajectory here? And I remember thinking to myself, I don't know if there's five years of trajectory <laughs> here. Like, like I thought that was my thought. I was like, what do you mean? Like, but they were serious. And I think that was a moment that is uh, kind of akin a little bit to what you're describing. An obvious zone of genius you have is brand building, getting people extremely excited and aligned around an aesthetic and a vision that you're kind of bringing to life. Do you feel like after you did bring in a CEO that you got to refocus on that or were things already sliding in such a way that you never like felt like you were able to grab onto the things that were super special to your skills again from that point? And I spent my time on it, but even as a founder or chairperson, if the thing is slipping, spending time on marketing and brand is not where you should be, even if that's the job you prefer. I had an incredible like creative director. We put out like some really beautiful stuff. I don't know if that's where I should have spent my time. And the brand was already like really strong by then. Aligning the creative team and the brand was less important than aligning the culture and the executive team. Because the culture, it just, we hired like 100 people in a year, then like another 100 people. And it became, everybody's processes were different. There were like duplications of effort. People didn't understand exactly what other people were doing. They were literally just speaking differently. It was like Noah's arc of people speaking different languages or something like that. So it's like not only on the executive side, but, and I don't know how these companies do it. Like, I don't know how companies have thousands of employees and somehow it all works. I don't envy it. I'm like so impressed by it, but it was hard to do with just a few hundred people. And I learned very quickly and I'm a super curious person, but the curve or whatever hockey stick of what was required for that job was steeper than like my ability to learn in that time. Um, and I kind of knew that, you know, there's a, you know, I'd written this book that Girl Boss that became this New York Times bestseller for 18 weeks and became a Netflix series that Charlize Theron produced and started to get even noisier than Nasty Gal. And I was like, okay, people are super into this. I hired a CEO. The last thing a CEO or any C-level executive wants is for you to meddle. So I guess I won't meddle, which maybe that me meant ho not holding people accountable. I don't know. But I was like, people love this girl boss thing. And um, started a podcast called Girl Boss Radio. Did that for five years. What was the support like for that or, or um, support or not? internally, maybe on the executive team and also maybe at the board level or investor level more generally, what, because I can imagine it being seen as a distraction or being seen as amazing, like, oh, this is building the brand. Which of those vibes did you get more at the time? When the book came out, it was very much like, this is content marketing. The logo of, Nancy Gal's logo was on the cover of a book that was in every bookstore and airport in the country. And like, yeah, sold half a million copies. It was everywhere. It was so we thought it would sell dresses and it sold books. <laughs> um, so everybody was stoked when the book came out. And then it was like, oh, Sophia, it just like built my profile, which wasn't my intent. I was just like, this is a marketing coup. The logo's on the cover. It's like just on display everywhere. And it turned into, it just became part of the zeitgeist in this way that I could never have anticipated and certainly couldn't control. And so over time, you know, I, I think the executive team and my investors still seem to understand the power of 
building that profile and being out there and doing press or whatever. But for a team seeing, you know, oh, there's a layoff and our founders like gallivanting around Can Lions, you know, talking on Google Island with like Jeffrey Katzenberg, like that's not making an impact, you know? You know, there's a lot of like tone deafness, I think, in where I was spending my time given um, the company was, you know, having challenges, but then you're kind of weighing it with like, maybe this will make an impact at some point. Maybe these relationships will lead to an exit. Maybe, maybe I hired a CEO and I'm going to trust them and go amplify my story. And right. that could lead to something. Well, those are extremely unique opportunities and it's really hard. It doesn't, it, it doesn't make sense to say no to a lot of things. I, I've heard you talk about how you say yes to many things. I think it's really admirable. But I think there's a, the CEO is in place at this point, the person you brought on. Are there any tense conversations around like, oh, I wish you were spending your time differently? Or, or is there actual friction? Or is it more like this more general feeling, all ships rise? I think if anything, it was fun. <laughs> She's amazing. She's like an incredibly special person. Yeah, if anything, like her enthusiasm for the brand overshadowed or, you know, maybe she spent more time on the product and the brand than how to turn this thing around or, you know, right size it. Her background was a So you two had a good relationship. Like even oh, through yeah. the the crisis, okay. Yeah, we were I mean like, that, that's like um, that's a non-obvious maybe for for an outsider of like I can imagine there being a lot of tension or something, um, but that's not how it was. No, we were yeah. like drinking at Stanley Ranch in Napa like a few months ago. Nice. Like, <laughs> awesome. What about relationships with the broader team? Just in terms of when when these things happen, you know, it can be so um, challenging. I'm, I'm curious how you've how you've thought about it or what took place. At that point, I was like, I don't know how to control the way people feel. Um, you write a book called Girl Boss, and you're some hero for women, and then you lay people off, and you're a villain. And you lay off an entire team, and you know one of them's on mat leave, and you have a separate team, and somebody's pregnant. I mean, eighty percent of your office is like, like having kids, like, you know, of that age, like, and you're just like a complete villain piece of shit, and because you're not a girl boss, they sue you. And there's headlines about toxic culture. And I'm sure I didn't build like the perfect culture. I didn't, I didn't intend to build a culture. It's super important to think about your culture before you even fucking like hire your first person. Build anything unintentionally, like imagine how that scales. That's what happened. Like the brand was intentional. The curation of the products was, was intentional, but the actual like mechanics of operating company and a team and aligning people and leadership things, executive things, you know, I learned too late. I mean, it was like you lay off the PR team, they go to the press and it's like a toxic place to work. I believe that, I mean, and I read all of it and I learned so much from it. I'm not someone who sees like critique or criticism as completely like bogus, even if parts of it are kind of bogus. There's something to glean from any, I think, mm -hmm. criticism that somebody makes of you. That listening really helped me build more self-awareness as a leader, but also, you know, it's just like, she's not the girl boss. She's not a hero. When you have to make tough decisions, just like any other CEO and, you know, watching Twitter layoff, I mean, whoever, Uber, whoever, like how many 
people do you hear being like, how many, I don't want to get into it, but like, you don't hear the same kind of like, oh, they're a traitor to women. It's just like a bunch of women get laid off. A bunch of men get laid off and that's it. And I'm not, again, I'm not complaining, but it was like a, you know, if you stand for something, which I didn't even assign myself, it's just called girl boss. People use it against you. Like they'll weaponize it. And I've seen it over and over again. So it's like, I want to like write something about just like I why I will never build a business for women again. <laughs> I think that's a fascinating point. Nobody you, wants you, to know a woman wants to. You became a poster child for not just a rags to riches story and some of these tropes and also realities, but also female entrepreneurship, just like full stop. You were a graphic like that you mentioned the cover of the book like the cover of the book is like a graphic that represents like literally the pose the whole thing is just like this is female entrepreneurship like here's the photo there it is <laughs> so in my own teeny way i found just being a female female ceo to be mildly restrictive women would interview with me and say i want to work with you because you're a female ceo and then have no reasons why they liked my company or they were passionate about packaging <laughs> or anything related to my business and i found that i found it offensive um I, i'm i'm curious what it was like after the world like however much you participate or not brands you as like just this you represent female entrepreneurship what restrictions did that put on you? Like, what what was it like to try to operate the business after that? It was hard, but it just seems so unimportant. It's so unimportant, like, how I felt in contrast to the impact that that book made. And mm-hmm. while people are like, I'm a, you know, gender neutral, you know, I'm an, don't call me an anything boss. Um, <laughs> at the time, it was like, well, you know, it was a year after Lean In. It was a oh, year yeah. after Lean In, you know, the only woman that was like radical, wow, woman in business writing a book that's like kind of honest. Like it was like Susie Orman, like who else was there before that? Um, <laughs> and so it's kind of stood as, as this counterpoint for the first time people saw like at scale, this community college dropout from Sacramento started an eBay store and somehow one foot in front of the other and did this thing that nobody thought they could do. People don't really relate to the, you know, most of the ultra pedigreed C-level executives of unicorn companies, but every girl with a dream and every brow artist and every ceramicist and every girl who wants to have a jewelry line now is like, oh shit, maybe I am a business person. Maybe I don't have to carry a briefcase. Maybe I don't have to wear a power suit. Maybe I don't have to sacrifice my style or my lifestyle or work for the man or fit into some mold to like pursue my dreams. That's crazy. I just mm-hmm. saw someone do it for the first time. And um, it just gave license to like so many women in a, in a very like, you know, naive, simplistic. The book was like, I wrote it in my 20s, right? The conversation around women wasn't as nuanced as it became mm-hmm. after that, which was important, but it was it was a different time. You know, what that book did, no one other than someone who can like read my Instagram DMs and emails from the last nine years since that book would was published will understand. Hmm. That's an incredible answer. That all the negative that may have come from any restrictions of being this poster child and all this stuff is completely washed away by like how many people you touched is is 
just a really, um, really cool perspective. Uh, on that note, while we're at it, like, you know, you tweeted about this, I think a couple, um, or late last year, just the sort of the unfair slaughtering of the, of the term, or it feels like for some people, the term has taken on a different meaning, you know, many years later. I'm, I'm curious for your reflection as to like, what has happened and, 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 and why? I was just talking about this, I actually, like, was just writing about it, because I'm like, maybe I should write about it. But if I do, it's going to be like, I'm inserting myself into the conversation around women again, which is like, I don't really want to do. It became this like calling card for a generation of women who are like, I'm a girl boss. Like a brand can't do better in the, can do no better in the world than having people identify with the brand more than the product and for it to represent something aspirational that gives them, uh, that makes them feel like they can do more or be better. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what it was. What it became eventually after Hillary lost and this just like different era and Me Too, the conversation around women became politicized. I mean, it always has been. But again, this was like a pink book with like a hashtag in the title that talks about like me smearing poop on the wall in, in like Montessori. And people were like, talk about the wage gap. And I was like, my last job was in the lobby of an art school. But OK, let me like make something up. It was just. I was, I put myself in this position or somehow accepted this position of like speaking on behalf of women. And as this white woman who had like never been grabbed or like nobody put their hands in my thigh, I employed everybody I'd ever worked with. I just, it's like, it was just in, I was just in this like different place. So girl boss became this term associated with like Emily Weiss and Audrey Gelman Ty Haney and this crop of women that came up after me who had Shopify, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky bitches. <laughs> doesn't make it any easier. It doesn't make it, it's like, it's hard no matter what. But um, who like kind of, cra- you know, came up and I, it was like, wow, girl bosses, you know, Audrey Gellman's pregnant on the cover of like Inc. Magazine or something. And even though it was a bunch of white women and mostly like pretty white women, that was a real thing. And you know, I think it takes like a bunch of white women to like make room for a bunch of other kinds of women because they're hopefully we can use our privilege to just crack it open a little bit and then other people can run through it. The way it wound up eventually was, okay, these women are heroes. They use their privilege to sell shit back, like to create some feminist narrative, capitalize on it and treat their employees like shit. And I'm sure there's there's certainly truth to it. You know, again, like I said, there's like, I've read so much shit about myself and there's something to glean from it. Also, when I read other people's shit and their employees' complaints, like the magnitude of it can be unfair. But what's said, there's always some truth. That being said, this doesn't happen to like dude founders who like lay people off during a pandemic, right? And also none of this happens when people aren't getting laid off. Nasty Gal, fucking Glossier, all all of these companies were toxic once they laid people off. Maybe they were anyways, but, and people are afraid to speak out, but it's like, this is a double opt-in. Like, if this is a shitty mm-hmm. place to work, like, you can leave. Again, I'm not making excuses for anybody, but this just goes for every company. Mm-hmm. And I, when you build a really cool company for millennials where the product is cool and, like, you know, it's a social capital among your peers, your LinkedIn looks cool and people mm-hmm. are trying to root because mm-hmm. that logo's on your LinkedIn or whatever. 
when you're removed from that environment, that cool thing, where it's about more than a job, but it's about a sense of belonging. And that's a really special thing. It's still a job. It's still a job, but it's to be cast out of this thing that feels so cool and is so much more than job. It's really Mm. like really hard for people. So ultimately, girl boss became this term that was then warped. I mean, again, this is the zeitgeist. Like the best thing you can ever expect, you know, or ask for is that you like put something out into the world, don't have control over it, becomes part of the zeitgeist, whether it's good or bad. It's like, that's really powerful and insane. And I'm proud mm-hmm. of it. But it became this You've like- You've done that multiple times. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it became this like trope, mm-hmm. you know, like simp- oversimplifying- the experience of women, not including the experience of other women, hustle culture, um, it not being, nece- you know, necessarily inclusive. It was a very, it was like a very naive, simple book and concept that a 20 something person wrote in like an echo chamber. And that's the way it probably failed in a, in a much more simple time. And, you know, if there's a word that can serve as a counterpoint for things that are wrong, and I can put that into the world and it warps into something that starts a conversation that is actually really important and also mm. partly true, then I'm totally fine to take responsibility and really proud to have that word be like warped into something that's not even seen as a good thing because it's like opens up an important conversation. I think it's a really fun perspective because it's like you're you're birthing things and they're like running around the universe like like committing like they're doing amazing accomplishments they're like committing crimes or like doing all this crazy stuff and you're like at least I pushed it out like I, and but you bringing up this other crop of women I actually have a question for you you're a trailblazer in many ways um and and like hitting certain revenue milestones building a company from scratch all all very positive but then there's one as well I think you trailblaze in being a female entrepreneur who like is built up and pulled down. Like that's probably not one of the trails you wanted to blaze, but you certainly did. And I think this other crop of women that you just referred to, Ty Haney, the Away founders, Audrey Gelman of The Wing, there's a few year period where it's just like every couple months there was like a piece. It was so wild. Like you would just refresh your screen and it was like the next icon that you admired was just like slain. <laughs> But what yeah. was that like for you? Because you were, you you experienced that years before them. Uh, I don't know. Did any of them reach out? Like, what was it like for you personally to watch that? Sure. Some of them reached out. Um, you know, it's like the tallest blade of grass gets cut first or something. It's like, ooh, mm-hmm. it paved the way for a generation of women to, like, do cool shit and then also to fail. And, you know, when I did, everybody, like, supported me. I just had a lot of support because the same people who read the book and were like, yeah, I can do anything had probably like fucked up and failed by the time like I fucked up and failed. And they were like, well, thank you for giving us permission to fuck up now. Thank you. Aww. You know, but you know, the public <laughs> so eye is just like run. another thing people can project themselves onto and be like, oh, I have permission to she can fuck up in public. I can fuck up in private. <laughs> you know, after I had fucked up nasty gal and watched this whole new crop of like entrepreneurs emerge with Shopify um (laughs) lucky I I was like excited about it but I was also like am I just like inherently flawed how are they winning like what what ship is missing did my parents do something wrong like what's wrong with me if like all these women can show up and just fucking win 
like all at the same time. And then like realize that like we're held to a different standard and we're built up because there's less of less of us and we'll probably sell magazines being on the cover of them mm-hmm. and sell clicks or whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. And there's just less of us to point to and we'll be made an example of, you know, there are like real things that went down and real racism, real like, you know, again, there's truth to all of it i think like the magnitude of those takedowns was like really wild and unfair and whether it's refinery 29 or the wing or even outdoor voices it's like even if these women weren't peddling products that like empowered women their story was like empowering women and when you don't live up to that if you don't live up to being like the perfect pure female founder who serves as this example for all women, it will be held against you. There's another version of The Wing where mm-hmm. Audrey or the Away CEO said, hey, this press piece was bullshit. This is wrong. Like, I'm a good CEO. I treat people well. And these people are crazy. Or these people these were women, accusing me the, are crazy. These women didn't defend themselves. Whereas you're comparing and contrasting to Brian Armstrong who goes, you right. know what? If you don't like being here, leave my company. Like, women seem less likely to do that, I believe is your commentary. That's a, it's more of a question. When people are victimized or discriminated against, you can't, you can't disagree with people's experiences. Like that's called gaslighting. <laughs> like you can't do that. And again, it's not, not everything's going to be true, but it's like, you can't disagree. You kind of can't disagree with people and uh, you would be like skewered so much more. Like what matters, what's, what's right matters less than optics. Um, when you're responding to kind of stuff, you apologize. You don't, you don't make excuses. Like every single word you use when you respond to the kind of accusations that these women, you know, had against them needs to be, needs to empathize with the people who have, who are like hurting or who had a bad experience, who are coming out and talking about things that are really scary to them. Like they don't want to put their name on whatever it might be. But maybe they want to save someone, you know, if, you know, Harvey Wein, like everyone else denies shit. I guess women just don't deny (laughs) Women don't deny shit. Yeah, they kind of own it. Like whether, I mean, that might be chronically good or chronically bad. It's, it's, um, it depends on the situation, I'm sure. I've heard you say that um, as a CEO or potentially just a leader, you often know about like 10% maybe of what's going on in your organization, but you're held accountable for 100%. I think that kind of relates to this topic um, because ultimately it like happened under your umbrella, um, whether you like knew what was going on under your umbrella. What does this mean for you now? Like, does this motivate you just like have a smaller umbrella? Do you feel like that's actually just how the world works? Do you think that's unfair? Like, I, I thought it was a really interesting comment, but I'm curious like what your takeaway from that is in terms of how you operate now. I'll wear like a sombrero that I can fit like one or two people under. <laughs> like nothing. Like, totally. That's it. Like yeah. I have like a cash flowing business with business class, which is my mm-hmm. online course for entrepreneurs. I have one employee. It's pre-recorded. It's incredible. But like that's how I want it to be. I have the fun. I like being in the weeds. It also makes me a shitty leader. Mm-hmm. 
life. I want to do that stuff. I don't want to like tell people to do that mm-hmm. stuff and then hold them accountable. That's not why I, I like start anything. And I get to be in the weeds with founders over and over and over again as an investor. And I get to like look at the decks and I get to talk to people and, you know, spar over like, is this good? Is this not? What's your fun construction like? Tell me about institutional LPs, like, you know, all this shit that I'm learning as a as a fund manager, like, I love it. Like, I love, I just, it's what made Nasty Gal successful. And I love being resourceful and I can't delegate that. So, no, I don't. I never want to lead a team again. I'm not, I'm not an operator. I don't enjoy it. I could build something massive. I don't know if I'm playing small or lazy or damaged, but hmm. we're just playing to my strengths. And I kind of think I'm probably playing to my strengths and like pretty like, honest with myself about like what I will and won't enjoy doesn't mean I like everything about my job jobs and so now you're investing the funds name is trust fund that trustfund.vc right and um I'm curious as an investor so we've been talking a lot about your experience as an entrepreneur and I'm sure it's really informative for the people you invest in and you being a confidant of theirs and a mentor of theirs but a real talk question I have when you rewind to yourself multiple years ago as well do you think entrepreneurial mistakes are kind of like adolescence, like everyone has to make a certain amount of their own? Or do you really think that if you had a perfect mentor six, seven, eight years ago, that you really could have avoided some of the key mistakes you made? It's like, is this stuff necessary or, or is it really avoidable I, as a question? I think it depends on how you learn. Like I learn, mm-hmm. I'm a very experiential learner. If someone tells me like, this is how things are, I'm like, let me learn for myself. And that hurts. Mm-hmm. And it also takes a long time. But when I do get it right, I've got this like muscle memory and a level of conviction that I don't have when I take people's advice. And that's just, that's why, you know, it's part of being a, a an entrepreneur or an investor who's comfortable taking risks. I think failing in private and early are much better than failing late or experiencing adversity in your business late. You know, be, it being in front of other people is way less important than um, developing the skills early on where you're like, oh shit, you know, cash flow. Oh shit. I was just on this rocket ship for so long and things only really, you know, got complex and weird when we just grew from, you know, when we hired like hundreds of people in a year and you know, it was just like a shock to the system. It was a unnatural shock to Mm -hmm. the system of a company that honestly didn't have systems. So I think it's different for everybody, but I think success makes you lazy. When you're on an upswing, there's all kinds of shit happening beneath the surface. And if you stay on that upswing, maybe you'll never see it, but there's always, it's always going to come down. The tide's always going to recede at some point. And you're going to see like all the like you know, aluminum cans and weird dead crabs and all the shit that happens at low tide that was there anyway, but you just didn't know. Mm -hmm. When when you see other people who are going through, you know, they built up and so their, um, you know, confidence levels at a certain thing, and then they're taken down to some degree and their confidence levels is is taken down, even though they're still at a high high point. What advice do you have for them as to how to manage the the psychology of being knocked down a peg or, or, or taken down to some degree? Just like it's normal, you're not special. Mm-hmm. Like, like you'll grow yourself, basically. Yeah, a year or two from now. I mean, there's like the point zero two percent that you're going to be 
so smeared um, that you'll like never have a future. People forget they're like super self absorbed. And even though you think everybody like remembers your hard times or I think that I'm just this pariah because I lost investor money or something, people move on. Um, and they want to see you continue to win. And what you did do and what you did do well is still really valuable and that it like comes along with the ride and to just cast yourself into the future a year or two from now and just be able to pretend you're there and look back and be like, yeah, that sucked. And like you're in it, but just know that like two years from now, you're going to be like, yeah, yeah, that sucked. And you might even laugh about some of those things because yeah. that's what happens. Mm-hmm. I've talked to people who have done far less in their careers, who have far more regret and FOMO feelings than you. Like, I I feel like you somehow have like done more things than many entrepreneurs in a short amount of time. And then you also just don't channel like a regrets or like woulda, coulda, shoulda. How do you do that? Like, what, what would you say is like something that other entrepreneurs could learn from your mindset because it feels it feels unique like you feel like you're lacking FOMO and lacking regret more than other people I've talked to uh who've done yeah I mean yeah I don't think it's some like diluted rationalization and I'm terrified all the time that I'm gonna you know oh shit I'm investing people's money I'm a fiduciary depending on what I say I can go to jail like you know it's like I'm in the public eye. All it takes is one LP to be like, she won't give me a refund. And it doesn't even like, it's not even valid. And like, all mm-hmm. you know, so yeah, I think about this stuff all the time. I just keep showing up. One, because like, I didn't make $300 million from Nasty Gal and I need to work. Um, also, because I just like learning. I'm unemployable and I have a platform that I'm going to use and I'm going to, you just like thrifting clothing and using a laptop or whatever on eBay. It's like, not everybody has the same toolkit. It's not about what you have. It's what you do with what you have. And I, you know, take inventory and I'm really grateful of what I have. Try to do better with however I decide to combine those ingredients with what I'm doing. And right now it's with trust fund and they're like really fucking great ingredients I'm just like, I look around, like I'm looking in my backyard and I'm like, I've owned this house for 11 years and I still can't believe I live here. Like if Mm -hmm. I ever stop seeing this view, like, and I don't want more, it's also problematic. Like I don't have goals, which is not like, oh, wow, I'm I'm not flying private or anything like that. But like, I like, like what I have. And I don't know if that's going to be like Groundhog Day someday or that just means I'm like grateful or something, but I just put things in perspective and I'm like really lucky, healthy. My parents are alive, like whatever. I don't like write in a gratitude journal and I get bummed like all the time. And I'm also an antidepressant, so I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But you're always looking forward instead of backwards. It's just a very basic comment. But, but honestly, even in just talking to entrepreneurs about their stories, their just stories are usually riddled with like, a variety of things in the rearview mirror that they want to do different, yada, yada. So that's what so you anyway, guys were trying to get out of me. No, no, I no, just, no, no. Yeah. I think this has been amazing, but you're, but you're so like, uh, so endlessly forward looking. It's, it's really inspiring. And I, as a investor, 
Do you feel like you've had any successes? And you don't have to name names, but like, have you had any wins where you feel like, I helped this person see around a corner. Like I am now playing a role for them that I wish I had previously. Like, have you had that full circle feeling? All the time, like all the time. Amazing. I'm an advisor to a lot of the companies because I've invested over a million dollars, my own money into over 20 companies like, you know, public.com where I'm an advisor and Passport, which is a international logistics company. And like, whether it's- mm, I know them. Being on the phone with a potential- hire and helping close a candidate by talking about how enthusiastic I am as an investor about that company and how great the founder is or talking to their team about the kind of impact that I think that they can make, which a founder saying it is important, but other people mm -hmm. who've signed up for it is also important. Or, you know, getting a founder on a panel with me at Collision to talk about like retail investing or literally doing loom teardowns. Like I owe a founder a mm. loom teardown of all of their social media and like went into their I logged in at breakfast, like logged into his Instagram account. I was like, your bio here like, doesn't even, this isn't representing like what you're doing. And those are all really small things, but or introductions, right. That like convert to opportunities. So it ends up being a lot of smaller things that, are cobbled together because the big things are the responsibility of the founder. And I can contribute what I can and what they do with that introduction is like entirely on them. I think that might be a great place to, Sophia, thanks so much for coming on in the arena and sharing your hard-earned uh, wisdom we uh, really with, appreciate uh, with our founder it. audience. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to In the Arena. If you enjoyed the conversation, please like, subscribe, and share by leaving us a review and telling everyone you know. And please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at inthearena underscore pod. We'd love your suggestions on who else has an intense experience to share. 